Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Art of Money podcast, where I share honest conversations about how money influences our personal experiences, beliefs, and relationships. Infusing this taboo subject with a loving dose of dark chocolate and inspiring encouragement. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, which is my flagship program, year-long money school, and global community. Integrating money healing, money practices, and money maps, The Art of Money is my holistic framework blending therapeutic body-based practices with the real-life tools you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your relationship with money. So you can say goodbye to that dusty old budget and hello to healing your money life. Learn more on my website, barrytesler.com. For now, grab something to sip on, get comfy, and tune in to today's episode of the Art of Money podcast. So today I have the honor and pleasure of being able to interview Janine Roth. And our topic is how food and money interconnect in our lives. And so I'm just going to begin by giving her official bio and... And then we'll start diving in. So Janine Roth's pioneering books were among the first to link compulsive eating and perpetual dieting with deeply personal and spiritual issues that go far beyond food, weight, and body image. She believes that we eat the way we live and that our relationship to food, money, love is an exact reflection of our deepest held beliefs about ourselves and the amount of joy, abundance, pain, scarcity we believe we have or are allowed to have in our lives. Rather than pushing away the crazy things we do, Janine's work proceeds with the conviction that our actions and beliefs makes exquisite sense and that the way to transform our relationship with food is to be open, curious, and kind with ourselves instead of punishing, impatient, and harsh. In the past 30 years, she has worked with hundreds of thousands of people using meditation, inquiry, and a set of seven eating guidelines that are the foundation of natural eating. Lastly, Janine Roth is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Women, Food, and God, in an amazing book. She's appeared on so many television, national television shows, including The Oprah Show, 2020, NBC Nightly, The View, Good Morning America, and on and on. She's written many columns in Good Housekeeping Magazine and Prevention Magazine. And lastly, Janine is the author of nine books, including bestsellers Lost and Found, which we're going to be talking a lot about today, and When Food is Love, and her website is JanineRoth.com. And, you know, the last thing I also want to say is, I, Janine, I have been following your work for years. So when I was getting my training in somatic psychology from Naropa University, your work and even, you know, beginning to have a relationship to food and all the connections you made and how you taught me and so many people around me and the work that I've brought to my clients for years around food, body, and God, um, it has just been such an essential, important piece to my training, and I've just been following you for years and then was very aware of everything that happened with your relationship to money when the whole Bernie Madoff fraud 
happened. I've been watching it closely, how that happened, what happened, and how you came through it so beautifully. So it is such an honor for me to be able to hang out with you today and be with you today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm quite moved by what you just said. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited. I want to have fun and I want to go deep, which I hear you and I've watched. You do the same. Uh-huh. You like to have fun? <laughs> fun is always important. Yeah. Good, good. So we're going to talk a lot about money, but I actually wanted to just start with food because I noticed that so many people, when they're doing money work, it's really the last frontier or one of the last frontiers. Mm-hmm. And that we are doing work in so many other important areas, and then all of a sudden we wake up one day and realize, oh, my God, I need to do work around money or something happens, and it's just time. So I'd love to start briefly with our relationship to food. And I know you've been researching this for 30 years, but if you could just give us a little bit about the message of food and having a relationship to food and body and some of, like, the key nuggets of your 30 years of research, and then we'll dive into money. Wow, key nuggets from 30 yeah. years. <laughs> um, well, I think that the, the meta perspective is that I, I really see, and I think everybody already knows this if they take a moment to think about it, that how we do anything is also how we do everything. And so how you eat is a reflection of how you live. How you spend is a reflection of how you eat. How you are in relationships with people around you is a reflection of the, the way you are in relationship with the rest of your life, meaning that your beliefs, both conscious and unconscious, drive your behavior. How you think, how you feel, affects and drives how you act. And so how you and so you can go at your relationship with food and money from either direction, from watching what your beliefs are and therefore how you act, or from looking at the food on your plate and or how you spend money and asking yourself what this says about you, what they say about you, and what you truly believe. For instance, if I am uh, binging a lot, and or if I am hiding food, if I am sneaking food, if I am so-called stealing food, I call it, which basically means hiding and feeling ashamed of it, then that will tell me if I'm actually interested in it. And what happens is that people develop such a shtick around their relationship with food and so much shame around it and so, and, and so intense a conviction that they've got to change this, that they don't actually become interested in why they're doing what they're doing or what this says about what they really believe. I'm not allowed to take up space. If they really saw what I was eating, they meaning the people in my life, my friends, my colleagues, my boss, my kids, my partner, they wouldn't love me. If they really saw me, they wouldn't love me, therefore I must hide, and therefore I must sneak. And that's quite a fundamental belief that most of us have, without realizing we have it, that then drives how we eat and how we spend. I have to 
go on shopping binges and then come home and lie about it or hide what I've bought from my partner. Because if he or she really saw it, they would think that I was out of control, which, of course, I do feel out of control, but I don't want them to know I'm out of control. So I have to hide this. And I think what most people are out of control about fundamentally is how they feel about themselves. And they don't know how to get a handle on that. They don't even know how to begin looking at it, examining it, or exploring it, no less changing it. So there's so much shame. You know, there's so much shame that people have to move through with this. There's a lot of shame, yes. And there's a lot of just basic unconsciousness and lack of curiosity. We think we already know why we are the way we are. We think we've gone down that path. We think we've explored it already. We don't think there's anything new to feel or see or know or understand or learn. Been there, done that, know what I need to do to change it, have to make myself uh, stay with this, whatever the program is, in order to change it. The problem is not that I don't know what I need to do to change, just that I can't quite make myself change it or stay on that. That's a completely different approach to yourself and to being alive than curiosity, kindness, tenderness, really wanting to understand. And and that's not the same as self-indulgence and acting out. So, you know, during this time and, and working on your own relationship to food and bringing what you say, awareness and attention and love and curiosity to your whole relationship to food for all these years and, and coming to a really good place to it with it, um, during that journey, what was happening with your relationship to money? I didn't really want to think about money so much. It seemed um, outside my, uh, let's see how to call it. It just didn't seem interesting to me uh, or, or I wasn't passionate about it. Whether I had a lot of money or didn't have a lot of money at a given time, and I've gone through periods of my life where I basically had no money and uh, was living in a house with many other people, working as a maid or a dishwasher, um, making uh, sandwiches from six in the night, six o'clock in the morning to nine in the morning at a health food store. Didn't have a car. Wasn't sure how I was going to make it month to month. Uh, and then times when I've written books and got advances, had more money than I did before, but. It, it just never seemed, I don't know whether I should say it never seemed understandable or it more seemed like the realm of men, not women. Uh, I was more passionate about my work and doing what I was doing, and I would have done it for free. So it wasn't ever about the money per se for me. And I think because I was never interested in being rich, and being rich was never a goal of mine, doing what I loved was a goal of mine. Was I, just, I knew I couldn't die without 
knowing, discovering, and doing what it was that I loved to do, that I was, that was my so-called job description on earth. And the money, although of course I needed it to survive, seemed to be um, a satellite to that. And, and as I said, it didn't matter whether I had a lot or whether I had a little or whether I had enough to get through the month. I kept focusing on what it was I was doing more than the money that I was making. So, I mean, there was a relationship to money. There was sometimes I have money, sometimes I don't, which really important to me is my creative work in the world and, and my calling and my message and doing that. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's, I mean, did you track your money or it really was more just like that was not something you paid attention to or, you know, it, it, as you said, it was in the realm of men. I you know, thought so, it was in the realm of men. You know, I do want to say that unlike food, and this is where the crossover wasn't exact, unlike food, I didn't binge on, splurge a lot on money. I always had a basic sense of how much I was making and how much I needed to, to sort of, you know, a, I wouldn't say that it wasn't even vague. I always stayed within the limits of what I was making. And I wasn't in debt. I didn't borrow money from friends. I didn't ever overcharge on my credit cards. I never I never got in trouble around money in that way that that people can get around yeah. money that wasn't that w- that wasn't one of my patterns and that was different than food because food i was dieting and binging all the time and when i went on binges they were humdingers of binges i mean they were binges that started from the moment i woke up and i never stopped eating until i went to sleep so i could have 20,000 calories in a day easily and when i was dieting I was dieting on 1,000 calories a day. So I knew how to diet. I certainly knew how to binge around food. And that was the source of a lot of suffering for me. Money, there was some instinctive way, and I don't know if it's from growing up in a family that at first didn't have money and then did have money, and money was really important to my dad. Uh, And he was um, insistent on paying credit cards in full every single month and never, ever, ever getting into debt. So, so you learned that from him. I mean, I learned that, that very, very early. And so I was always able to save a little money, even when I was only making $300 a month. I, was, I never overspent on the money that I had. So it wasn't a problem in the way that food was a problem. But for you, savings was, there, there was a lot of energy around that. Or that was, you know, whenever I talk about with money, whenever I talk with folks around money, I want to know what are your strengths, what are your challenges. And I've, you know, as I've read all your stuff, savings was a big deal. Like whether you learned it from your family and your father. But can you just say a little bit about what savings meant to you? I know it's probably changed and I want to get to that later. What did savings mean to you all those years? But see, for me, there was a very big disconnect between what it took to make the money that I made. As I started writing, publishing books, getting more successful, I think 
it, more than saving money, there was a big disconnect for me between the life energy that I put into work because I adore my work and um, and I always have from the time that I charge just a dollar a night to start my first groups on food and on compulsive eating. I was thrilled to do that. From the time I charged a dollar a night to the time I started making money and sold my first book for $6,500, I remember when I got the check for that first book, because it was already written, so I got the check in full for $6,500, and I didn't cash it until um, the final acceptance was already done. I was too afraid to spend it. Uh, because I was afraid that the book wasn't going to be good enough. And so I lived, I was still sharing a place, and I, I was living on very meager amounts of money, but, but I didn't want to spend the money for my book because I think I was afraid in some way. I couldn't connect the fact that I had spent years writing this book and I'd gotten paid for that time. Money seems separate to me from the energy that I put in, the life energy that it took to make it, I'd get it and I wouldn't spend it. I I couldn't quite connect that, oh, I just spent years of my life and this is what I'm getting, this is what this check is for. It just seemed like it was, I was getting a check for $6,500 from nowhere. I, I don't really know how to say this in any other way. And so, yes, I saved that money because there wasn't a connection between how that money came to me and what I did to get it. So is this something about, or was it back then, something about your sense of your own value? I think it was. I think it had to do with worth, which, of course, has everything to do with money. Your self-worth, your net worth, how you value yourself and your time. What I saw about money after we lost everything, and we went through three different periods of losing money, the last of which was in the Ponzi scheme, and at, you know, at which point we lost everything. But before that, we had lost a, a, a big chunk of money to our very good friend and financial advisor who it turns out was embezzling our money. And... Um, I didn't realize that, and I didn't want to see it. I just wanted to be blind. I, I mean, you can say that in 2020 hindsight. The, all the signs were there. He was acting just a little odd, um, and uh, I, I could not quite tolerate or believe that this person we loved, whose wedding we'd been to, whose birth of the kids we had been to, was stealing from us. And this was you, in your 30s. You were in your 30s. In my 30s. Okay. And so, uh, but, and the, so that's, again, about that disconnect. I didn't want to connect the fact that I, in some way, this is going to sound, I don't really mean to use this language because it's not so much owned, claimed, I should say claimed, the worth of myself. 
um, so that the money that came to me, I'd basically we'd basically give to him to invest without really, really thinking about the fact that this took three years of my life and that I'm never going to have back to make this money. How much do I value myself? How much is that time worth to me? Is it worth enough to actually think about where it's going? Because what would happen to me is I'd make the money and then there was some way, and this is more complicated than about worth because it also has to do with me believing that money was dirty and spiritually incorrect, and so feeling some degree of shame that I even had made any money. I felt like it was better to be poor than to have made money. And what about all the writers who are better writers than me, who aren't getting their books published? Why am I getting money for my stuff? So I didn't want to think about it. And so that was also a way not to think about it. Of course, that has to do with worth as well. Um, but I would make the money and then it was just get it out of my sight so that I don't have to think about it because I valued myself on some level that I wasn't even aware of. If you had said to me, Janine, do you value yourself? I would have said, of course I do. You know, I, 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 I do. I, I love my life. I'm married to somebody I love. I, I have a life that for the most part... I love, I'm doing work that I love. I adore the work I'm doing. But I didn't value some essential ingredient of my life energy and time vis-a-vis money. And I, I also think that was complicated because of the relationship, and this is what I talk about in my book, Lost and Found. The relationship that I had with money with my father was so convoluted. And it was so um, degrading. It was really degrading uh, that I, I hadn't dealt with that. I hadn't looked at that. I hadn't been honest about that. It was so painful. And so until I really looked at that, which I didn't look at till we lost everything, I I couldn't be conscious, or wasn't. I, I you know maybe I could have, but I wasn't conscious about how I felt about making money, which was very split. I was glad I was making it for the work I loved. How fortunate is that? How rare is that to be doing work you love and make money for it? And I felt guilt about it and degraded by it as well. So it was very complicated in there. <laughs> It was, and I, I, I really am appreciating all the threads that you're sharing with us that went on for years, because anyone on a spiritual path, psycho-spiritual path, is going to bump up against all of these polarities and is, gonna ha- is going to be asked or demanded at some point to figure these out, to understand these, to make sense of these. So here you were, someone who loved your work, and yet whenever you would actually get paid for it, there was... There was a disconnect or there was guilt. Um, there was really strong feelings of not fully letting that in. And then your whole relationship to your father, that's probably why money also was supposed to be in men's territory. Men oversaw this. Men took care of this yeah. because of the pain you know, of that relationship and what happened there. And, and I hear that at some point 
you were really challenged, and that's where I want to go next, because you finally had to move into a place. It was a big initiation, a big money initiation for you to claim your life energy and, and actually connect it with money for maybe the first time in your life. So I know your story about losing everything, but can you please share about what happened? So you shared, you shared in your 30s, someone, you know, this man who you were so close with took all the money, it took all of your money, and, and, and then it happened again in 2008 with Bernie Madoff. What happened? Well, you know, let me just backtrack for a while and just about uh. my dad, because um, as you were talking, and I wrote about this in Lost and Found, money was in the realm of men. My dad used to walk around with a wad of bills. When he started making money, and both of my parents were very, very poor when they got married, didn't have enough to eat, um, it was a day-to-day thing, scraping by. And when my dad started making money and then working his way up the corporate ladder, it got to be a big thing for him. And, and the more money he made, and that was not until my um, 15, 16, 17, 18. So for most of my life, my parents didn't have a lot of money. Comfortable enough, weren't starving, we had enough to eat, doing okay. Then as I got older in high school, my dad made more money. And at that point, he'd walk around with a wad of bills in his pocket, really thick. And there was this sense of he was the one who held the power because he was the one who made the money. And I tell a story in Lost and Found about what he used to do, maybe a couple times a year, walk in, the family was eating in the dining room, and he would take the wad of bills out of his pocket, throw it up in the air, and all of us, and it was my mother, my cousin who was living with us, me, and my brother, so four of us, would get down on our hands and knees and crawl around on the floor, you know, just frantic to pick up the dollar bills, $20 bills, uh, $5 bills, $10 bills, and some $100 bills that had fallen on the floor. And whoever got the most got to keep the most. So that was the relationship with money. I'm the guy. I'm the man. I've got the power. You are beneath me on the floor. It never occurred to me to question that, that as insane as that sounds. And it just gives me goosebumps to even tell that story now because it's so degrading, really. Um, so as I got older, I wouldn't say I repeated the same thing, but I still felt as if there was a degradation where money was concerned and it was the power in the the power was with the men who knew about money and so i as i said our financial advisor was a man the one who embezzled from us the um the i watched my dad go bankrupt um and get thrown in jail for what he was doing around other people's money, which I'm not going to go into now because it's not important. But I watched all of that happen around money. Then we got embezzled by our financial advisor. And then after we lost a lot of money with our financial advisor, um, 
we met a friend who felt sorry for us, basically, and said, felt sorry for us because we had this guy, Frank, had uh, stolen our money, got thrown in jail. It was just, it was heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking. So he felt sorry for us. Our dear friend felt sorry for us and said, you know, come and be part of an investment that I've been in for 30 years. It's done well. My parents were in it. We knew it involved this guy named Bernie Madoff. We knew nothing about Bernie Madoff. We only knew that we loved and trusted our friend. And as I say in Lost and Found, <laughs> that, you know, if you ever hear I'm invested in anything, you should go running in the opposite direction because, you know, we loved and trusted, and we still do, our good friend, Richard, who told us about Madoff. Madoff didn't mean anything to us. It was Richard who meant something to us. It was the love and the trust. And he had started a fund. He was allowing, by the goodness of his heart, his friends to come into this thing that his father was part of because his father had worked in the same office as Bernie Madoff when Bernie Madoff was working in this teeny little office when he first started. And so you could invest any amount of money, $200, $500, $1,000. People have this misconception about uh, people who invested in Madoff that all of them were really rich, and it's not true. The direct investors had to invest a certain amount of money with Madoff. I, I don't know what they had to invest, but the fund that Richard opened to his friends was anything you wanted to invest, you could invest. And the returns were... 5%, 6%, you know, reasonable. They did not seem, this was a time when the market was doing quite well. So this did not seem like if it's too good to be true, it is. Um, it's not true. This seemed reasonable, 5%, 6%, 7%. That really didn't seem so off the scale. So we first invested a little bit, and then as my husband and I realized that neither of us were really interested in uh finding and and really paying a lot of attention to investing you know to to doing a lot of research on stocks and um we started talking to people and it seemed like all financial investment people were taking gambles on things they didn't really know any more than anybody else knew they were guessing what 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 was going to go up and what was going to go down and taking bets and gambling. It just seemed like the whole thing was a big gamble. And, and, and so we decided to invest some money with Richard, and then over a period of years, 10 years, maybe not 10 years, 8 years, we just started, we used Madoff as a savings account. We used our Madoff account as a savings account. We lived on the money we needed to live on that we made. We didn't put that into Madoff, which meant a very little amount um, because uh, we don't spend that much money. And we put everything else into our Madoff account. And that's how we did it. We didn't question. I mean, we got return. I mean, we got statements every month, all these stocks that Madoff was invested in. But the main relationship was with Richard. And we didn't question that. You know, we knew Bernie Madoff was the head of the NASDAQ. We knew he'd been investigated by um, the SEC a couple of times and come up clean. That was good enough for us. That's, ha that's why we invested with him. That's not an, ex an excuse because, as I say in my book, you know, putting everything in one place 
uh, was um, dumb, just plain old dumb, and we were dumb. Do you want to ask and, another question? Yeah, I mean, and and but this was also about your love and your connection with this man, Richard, and that's what you trusted. That's what you love. That's what you trusted. You know, yeah, and and his parents had been in it and his wife and his wife's family was in it and pretty much everybody we knew because you know we all you know knew the same people and so maybe 20 other people that I knew were also in it and had been in it for years before we were in it and they were happy and they had done well and so there's yes there's nothing in this that felt like you're repeating an old pattern this is old stuff but here you were, you woke up well, one day and got... I wouldn't exactly say that. Okay. I would say right. what was repetitive was a man who knew best, uh, not questioning it, although I'm not sure. I think the only thing we could have done differently is, and that we would have done differently and we would never do again, is put all of our money in one place, ever do that okay. again. But yeah. even though, and a, and a very good friend of mine who I've, I met just in the last few years, post-Madoff, said to me recently, well, if you had had a good CPA, you know, any good CPA would have known that Madoff was a crook. And that is plain old not true. There were a lot of good CPAs, brilliant financial people, who did not see through Madoff. He had his tracks covered. Yes, in 2020 hindsight, it's really possible to say, oh, well, you know, he never lost money, so, or he did this, or, uh, you know, it's very possible to say that in that hubris of 2020 hindsight. Anybody can say, and even uh, my very good friend, you know, who I'm very close to, um, was... I would say, ignorant enough to say, well, anybody could have seen through that. And it's just not true. But in any case, we weren't anybody, and we weren't seeing through it. And I'm not even sure we thought enough to see through it because I gave the power away to Richard, who I you thought... Did. Right. Right. But, you know, it's it's always amazing what people say after, you know, a huge event like that. And I know you had a lot of beautiful teachers and friends say to you, is when you called them that day and said what had happened, and they said, okay, that is terrible, and you still have what's most important to you. And so I want to know, Janine, how did you take yourself through this initiation, this huge loss, this huge trial by fire? How did you take yourself through it and what is your relationship to money today? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> that's probably the question. Yes. Um, well, I guess the first thing I want to say is that when we got the, um, the phone call, when I got the phone call, that we had lost everything, uh, on the day that Madoff was arrested, which I think was December 8th, almost five years ago, um, I was in shock. And, uh, I, and then I went into terror because, as I said, we had, by that time, put everything but the most minimal amount that we needed month to month 
on there uh, because I was such a saver, as you pointed out. Um, And it took me a little while because my husband was gone for a couple of weeks and um, I was pretty much by myself, although, as I said, because almost everybody I knew had also invested in Madoff, I wasn't exactly by myself. But in that moment, I was by myself, and certainly getting through the night, I was by myself. The shock, it was shocking. It was terrifying. It was, um, well, it was beyond the beyond for me, really. I don't even know how to describe it. It, it just was everything from 30 years of life savings. Because with our other financial advisor, we hadn't put everything at all with him. We had taken about a quarter of what we had and given it to him. So the three quarters of what we had left, all of that was in Madoff. And to realize that that was gone and that it was 30 years gone was, uh, was like having the ground ripped out from underneath you and... I had no idea how I was going to live through the night. I had no idea what we were going to do. I had no idea if we could, where we were going to live. I had no idea how we were going to pay our mortgage. I had, I just was um, overwhelmed with shock and grief and terror, blame of myself because that's the first place I usually go. People have their own patterns. Sometimes they blame other people. Sometimes they blame themselves. I'm a self-blamer. Uh, for having done, put everything in one place. And um, I called, well, I called a couple of very trusted friends, and I would call them spiritual friends and advisors. And both of them said to me in their own ways, nothing of any value has been lost. And, you know, I said to my the first one, this is not the time to be spiritual. I was just so upset that I did not want to hear spiritual mumbo-jumbo from her. Nothing of any value has been lost. How could you say that? Um, but I soon realized she was right, and I realized there were different levels of this. I, re- I realized, yes, we have lost every single cent of 30 years of life savings, and I still had my life, and I still could breathe, and I still had my relationship with my husband and my friends. And um, it took sawing out to get to that, but I did understand quickly because the first night after hearing, I was up all night. I, I was a wreck. I was just, I, I was a wreck. I, I, it was like, you know, when you hear that someone has died or you get a terrible diagnosis, you want to go straight into denial, which you want to wake up the next day and believe the whole thing isn't true. I remember that's been true um, where um, people I've loved have gotten um, terminal diagnoses. And when I wake up the next morning, I want to, I'm hoping the whole thing was a bad dream. That night I didn't sleep at all, so there was no chance of waking up because I didn't go to sleep, but there was this constant desire to turn back the clock. We had, in fact, um, requested that uh, two-thirds of our money get taken out of Madoff two months before he went bankrupt, but you had to wait three months, or he got arrested. You had to wait three months for that to happen. So another month, and our money would have been out. Uh, 
Um, but anyway, it wasn't out when it, he got arrested, so there that was. And I realized that my friends were true. I mean, my friends were speaking the truth, that the only way to get through the days was to focus on what I hadn't lost and to focus on what I had enough of, not what I didn't have enough of. It was the only way. I understood the value then of the 30 years or 35 years of meditation practice I'd been doing, um, which had given me the resource to focus my mind on what was, uh, to focus my mind, I should just say to focus my mind, because I was able to, every time I wandered into <gasps> and uh, shame and fear and terror and blame, and every time I wandered there, I was able to, with vigilance and fierceness and incredible determination, bring myself back to this breath, this moment, this sky, this bird, this teacup, this bite of food, this bite of chocolate. You know, the fact that at that moment, I had a roof over my head. At that moment, I had enough. At that moment, I had food in my pantry. At that moment, I had my life. And at that moment, if I didn't go into my mind about what had happened at that moment, and I've heard so many spiritual teachers say this, but I've always felt like, what are you talking about? At that moment, there actually wasn't a problem. Because there was only a problem when I remembered that Madoff had been arrested and we had lost everything. But when I didn't go back into my mind... To remember that at that moment all that was happening was that I was sitting in a chair in a room, you know, in a room or outside looking at the sky or the wall or a painting or playing with my dog, and there wasn't a problem. So because I realized the urgency of that, I was able to keep doing that, and within... mm, maybe a week or so, I felt incredibly happy. And but it was a week of terror and crying and grieving. and It was a couple of days of that and then a couple of days of calling my very wise friends many times a day, getting reminded and bringing myself back when I couldn't do it, and then it was being able to do it by myself. So, so this, it, yeah. and it was, um, it changed my life unalterably. It was like having a near-death experience in a way. You know, the ones that Dying to Be Me, that book by Anita Morjani, or Proof of Heaven, uh, even Alexander wrote, where they're never the same. You, you know, you read these stories, these accounts of people who leave their bodies see whatever they see, goodness, kindness, angels, spirits, feel love, whatever they feel, and then when they clunk back into their bodies, life can never be the same because they've seen something that, that changes them forever. And that's what happened with this. It changed me forever because I realized that if I could feel that I had enough of what truly, truly mattered, when we had lost 
all of our money. It, and I want to say this. Before we'd lost our money, I lived in a constant state of anxiety about not having enough money because I wouldn't let myself have what we had. I was always focused on, well, what if, you, what if one of us gets a terminal diagnosis? What if we need to fly to Germany and get our blood cleansed? What if, you know, you're in an accident and, you know, we need 24-hour home care? What if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? What, what, I just kept on seeing what we didn't have, not what we did have. And so my mind went along particular channels, which is what I did as a kid. I lived in a state of impending catastrophe because as a kid growing up in a family that had a lot of abuse and addiction in it, a catastrophe was always impending. The other shoe had already dropped, and a bigger shoe was about to drop in about five more minutes. And so my nervous system was geared to high-anxiety catastrophe state always getting prepared for the next one that was about to happen. And what I didn't see until we lost everything was that I was still living like that. And I realized it was possible to live another way, no matter how much money we had. And that changed me forever. Mm. So this actually healed healed your childhood. Well, that that and 35 years of therapy and 35 years (laughs) of spiritual practice. (laughs) Yes, Yes. and in one moment. So 35 years of all of that and then in one big moment. You know, it was the hard work miracle, as they say. You know, yes and no is the answer to that. and, And since then, it's not that my mind doesn't go there. It's not that I don't focus on what I don't have. It's just that... When I do, I can remind myself that if I could and that I could feel calm and relaxed when we had lost everything and I could feel sufficiency, then then I can feel it now. And so it's just a little bump of a reminder. Then before we lost everything... It was, um, it was just theoretical. It was really just theoretical. It so wasn't. One last, yeah, one last question for you. What is money for you now? And do you feel as though you're claiming this relationship, this life energy, the power of this, the connection? Do you feel connected? Yes. Hmm. I still am never going to be somebody, you know, sounds like you are, who is absolutely fascinated by the ins and outs of um, money, what to do with money, investments, things like that. I'm not, it's not how I want to spend my time. I, I, I want to spend my time writing. I want to spend my time teaching my retreats, working with my students in my workshops, um, on my Facebook page, answering questions. I, I want to spend my time still doing the work that I love, and and I don't consider, you know, the ins and outs of particular investments. Although I pay much more attention to the the fact that when I get a check, I get a check 
for the, this is my life energy. This represents, if I write a book, this represents three years of eight hours a day of life energy. This is not just somebody giving me a check because they decided they were going to cut me a check for nothing. This has to do with me, my life energy. And I don't, we are starting to invest our money again. I would never put it in one place again. I want to put our money in places that mean something to me. I've started giving much more money away to friends, a particular portion of my money away to friends who need money, micro-lending. Sometimes I'll, I'll see that they need it and I'll give it to them. Um, I will only invest in what I care about. So, so has it changed? Absolutely. Uh, will I ever be somebody who is um, wants to spend days on options trading, who wants to do a lot of research on particular stocks? No, I never will be. Is my relationship with money changed forever? Yes. Is my relationship with sufficiency and having enough changed forever? Yes. Do I wake up every single day and remind myself to pay attention to what I already have to take in? Because I think most people don't know how to take in what they have. They don't allow themselves to have what they already have. This happens with food. We're much much more focused with the food that's on the plate instead of the food in our mouths. And so there's a constant feeling of never having enough because we're never focused on what we do have, only what we don't have. So it has changed my orientation, and that's the orientation that I now teach people who come to my retreats with food and with money. So we talk a lot about money. We talk a lot about food, but there's a completely different orientation because I feel like if people will allow themselves, that's the ground, allow yourself to have what you have. When I did, after we lost our money, I was much more objective about what I was able to do. It didn't throw me into a state of, um, you know, being a couch potato, it inspired me to write a piece about what was going on, which Salon.com published, which then inspired me to write my book about food. So when you allow yourself to have what you have, you're able to see your situation much more objectively, and therefore you're able to take action that's actually needed instead of running around like a chicken without your head because you're scared and you're frantic and you're anxious. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm with you. I'm not someone who likes to be steeped in, in um, oh, stock options and financial investments either, like day and night. For me, it's the deeper work. It's what you're doing, Janine. It's, it's your 35 years of paying attention to yourself, paying attention to your relationship to food, um, inviting us all to do the same with food and then now to do with money. That's you know, I was a dancer and then a therapist and then realized, oh, my God, this is one of our biggest shadows, like you did with food. So Yes, it is a shadow. You know, and yeah. and I, I think also what struck me from with the financial advisors that I interviewed for Lost and Found when I was writing it was that every single one of them said to me, nobody ever feels like they have enough money. 
If they have three million, they want six million. If they have fifty thousand, they want a hundred thousand. If they have two hundred thousand, they want four hundred thousand. And I started realizing that enough wasn't a quantity. Enough food, well, it is a quantity because at some point you get your body has had enough. But enough money, once you and I think I think it's Daniel Goleman who wrote about this, or no, the, the guy who wrote Stumbling on Happiness, he wrote about this, that, that once you meet, meet your basic needs of shelter, of food, of warmth, and of contact with other people, the rest, once you're out of abject poverty, the rest of the money you have does not contribute one bit to your happiness. And I really got that. I really got that it wasn't out there. Enough isn't out there. It's a relationship to what you already have. And unless you work on that first or simultaneously with how you're making money, you are never going to feel like you have enough. You will always feel poor no matter what you have. I mean, we have that example of Howard Hughes who walked around feeling like a beggar and had tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars. It's possible to feel fat when you're thin and it's possible to feel poor when you're rich. And and the thing that changes is your relationship with enough. Mm-hmm. So there is so much more um, territory that we could be covering. I am so grateful for the time that we did have. There's so much that you shared. Um, I also just want to honor before we go that you, I feel, and you tell me if this is correct, you you took it out of the male, the male realm and you brought it into yourself. Yes. And you made it the female realm, or you, and you means you chose where you want to interact and are still, you're much more engaged, but you made it your own. Yes, I would say that I realize that most men don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) And and, and it's not that most females do because I have to tell you that after I made a little bit of money, I started investing with a female advisor, and she didn't know what the hell she was talking about either. So what I realized is the power isn't out there, that I can't give the responsibility away, that this is my life energy, and if I'm, if I, and in my life energy, if I don't care about it, and if I think somebody else knows better, and it's not that advisors don't know a lot more than I do, they do. That's what they've spent their life doing in the way that I've spent my life studying, examining, exploring the relationship with food and now with money. They've spent their lives just with all of the, in the financial instruments, and I respect that. But the power is still mine. Because if I'm willing to give it away, then, and she lost almost all the money that I gave her, so, or that I gave her, listen to this, that I invested with her, because I was so willing once again, and look, I didn't give her a lot, because I already knew not to do that, but I realized I questioned her as much as I possibly could, but there was a basic assumption there that she really, really, really knew better and more than I did, and I didn't question as much as I could. And that was the final straw for me. Right. You know, I'd learned right. a lot, but I realized, okay, the power isn't out there. 
Yes, we have the final power. We have the final say. All of yep. Yeah. So, Janine, what you know for everyone that you know uh, wants to work with you more, that wants to read Lost and Found, that wants to you know read your food books. Just tell us what you're doing right now, so that everyone can join you. Yep. So the uh, couple of things and the main things, because um, I'm starting to work on another book now. Um, and I'm not out there in the world very much, but the places where I am out in the world, if people want to work personally and directly with me, the best place to do that is to come to my retreats, which I lead twice a year and which provide a huge amount of ongoing support throughout the year. And people can find out about my retreats at JanineRoth.com, and my name is spelled with a G, G-E-N-E-E-N. I... um, love those retreats. I also teach workshops uh, maybe twice a year. So that's that if you want to work with me personally. Also, I do and have two online courses that people can take. Um, Those are all on my website. And um, I'm going to start a mentorship program next year. That's not available yet. Um, and probably won't be until February of 15, but I am going to start that uh, sometime within probably the next year and a half. Uh, so I would say come work with me at my retreats. Read Lost and Found. Read Women, Food, and God. Those two books together, Women, Food, and God and Lost and Found, they will tell you everything you need to know about the work that I do. Then I would say the next step probably could be an online course or coming to a retreat. And then there's also just joining my Facebook page, the Facebook fan page, where the community and a lot of people get on there and I'm posting things a couple times a week um, and people are making comments and it's just a fun place. Janine, thank you so much. It's been such an honor and such a pleasure. Oh, it's been lovely. I've had a great time. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so so much. much. Thank you. Okay. Many blessings. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Hi again. Thank you so much for joining me today. What you heard here is a delicious sample of the loving guidance, heartful inspiration, and practical tools you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. I hope you found something here to take with you, a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your own money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. You can find out more at barrytesler.com.